welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Brett, Ed, Fran, Johnny, Matt and Paul, helping you to build more muscle and to lose weight with a hint of banter and a dash of humour. Enjoy this week's episode. Right, so we are on episode number 65, I understand. Can you believe it? Where the hell has 65 episodes gone? I don't know. It's madness. I haven't been on half of them, but yeah, at least at least half of them. More than half. Three quarters. Mm. I'm back though, I'm back. You're back. So we've obviously got a Matt. Who else have we got? We have a Fran. Yay. A Fran. Apparently. Nice, no, good. Yeah. I haven't been many either, but I'm back too. You are back. Um, what's been happening then? Me? Either. You prefer. Um, yeah, just getting back to normality post-surgery now. Doing stuff, swimming again. Now to swim. Going back to work tomorrow. That's scary. Um, had my first physio today. That was interesting. And now I'm in bed in my dressing gown. So, the wildlife I leave. It's very wild. <laughs> How's swimming been post-surgery then? Uh, I mean, when I say swimming, it's like 10 minutes of attempted swimming. Let me guess. It's all right. It's just I've just got um, quite an immobile, is that the word? Like neck and shoulder. Um, but the physio was good. She took out a load of stiffness and stuff, and I've got a load of exercise and stuff to do. So I bet she did. <laughs> Um, so yeah back to work tomorrow and then still not allowed in the gym for another few weeks I think I've got to have another MRI if I'm allowed to do anything too strenuous when you um, so when you swim do you put on those like woggle things I can imagine you put on those woggle things between your legs you know like those long your arms yeah well under your arms yeah like long they are called woggle aren't they like a polystyrene tube no I'm, no I just swim like a normal human okay no, well, I'm going in the lanes. I'm just going a little bit around a little bit. I bet you scare off some of the old, the old deers, don't you? Oh, I've been going in the day, so there's been no one there. Yeah. Like early. Okay. Post, well, I say early, post um, people going to work, but before the oldies get there. How's your, um, how's your nutrition been since, obviously, not being able to train, all the drama and the stress of the operation, etc., etc.? How's, how's it been? It's been really good, actually. So the, the hospital food was pretty amazing. I think we talked about it before anyway. But um, since getting home, just Ooh. been doing all the stuff you're supposed to do. What's, eating. The, what's your strategy? What's what's your strategy? I don't know, man. I'm not really... I'm not tracking. I'm not fussed by weight. I don't think I've even been weighing myself um, much, anyway. Just been trying to get in protein servings, really. Get that MPS... Um, but yeah, I, I'm not too fussed about calories or anything like that at the moment. It's mainly just trying to hit my protein goals and make sure I'm eating enough not to um, to uh, lose weight anyway because I want to recover quickly. quickly. Um, and actually, it's only been, well, it's actually four weeks, three weeks, four weeks today since surgery. So really, all things considered, this is pretty fast recovery. Um, surgeon's pretty happy with it all. So I'll, I'll say it was all the nutrition and nothing else. Um, so clearly, yeah. Now we're going into post-surgery nutrition. Um, actually, but one thing he did say was that surgery was a lot easier because I had uh, a little fat on my neck. Um, so you know, photo shoot, photo shoot probably did me a favour. <laughs> yeah, it probably took an hour after surgery. Or, uh, or thank your parents. Yes. Yeah, that too. Mm. So yeah, I'm good. Good. Well, good. we're glad. In bed early, obviously, ready for work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, I was going to say, we're glad to have you back. It's nice to have you here. Um, yeah, cool. Fran, what have you been up to? Holidaying? Uh, yeah, I'm currently in Cornwall with my family, which is nice. Nice but, to get away. Um, and other than that, I'm three weeks out from Junior Nationals. Um, so it's my big competition of the year. So everything's getting um, quite hard. So I'm quite fatigued from all my training but it's so, nice to... so many innuendos just, just i can't help myself when people say stuff <laughs> <laughs> sorry anyway carry on sorry <laughs> yeah no, other than that, just quite fatigued from training um can, can i just just remind people obviously junior nationals powerlifting again i'm just assuming yeah. people aren't going to necessarily just guess but yeah, no, sorry, I should have said under, so juniors being under 23, this is my last year as a junior, um, and yeah, powerlifting, 
and I'm competing in the 57 class, currently sitting at around okay. about 58, so oh, I've got easy. Kilo, kilo to cut through water or whatever in the week before. I was going to say, and, how are you going to do that? Well, ideally not, ideally I'm in a slight deficit at the moment, so ideally it will come down to 57 over the course of three weeks, but if the worst comes to the worst, yeah, I will um, just cut water in probably the 12 hours and 24 hours prior. Um, I'm assuming like a low residue would probably get rid of that quite quickly as well, so just going to yeah. do no fibre. Yeah, I'm, I will probably just cut out veg for a day or two, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah cut out fibre. And just stop drinking at about, I assume, about midday the day before, and that should do it. I know, like, if I go out drinking, for example, and wake up super dehydrated, I weigh in about a kilo and a half lighter anyway, so. Uh, yeah, maybe don't do that. I, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I'll be honest, I wouldn't go to a powerlifting competition drunk. I think that would probably not really help your performance. So you should, probably should stop drinking beforehand, yeah. I, yes. I assume you've still been training, in, or I know you've been training, I've seen it on Instagram. Uh, yeah. Training on your holidays with, with Daddy Bolt yeah. as well. Yeah, I've got my dad in the gym teaching him how to bench. And he's actually quite a good handout, actually. He gives a better handout than half the guys at the gym, so I think I might have to take him back up to uni with me. Uh. Don't Brett, you're just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're using the language, not me. Oh, dear. Uh, anyway. Uh, is that a, a, a holiday TV as well? <laughs> Yeah, I've got my yeah, it's going alright. It's going okay. I'd say, Matt, I don't know if you you obviously weren't privy to it, but I did ask Fran what was it like to be able to squat more than you ever could. So I'm not. I thought we've already discussed this many a time. Probably more than us. (laughs) Me and Pablo combined, probably. Yeah, probably. (laughs) It's an angry text when he listens back to this. Nah, yeah, you probably will. No, Pablo's like, oh, no, at my best, I squatted like 200 kilos or something. It's like, yeah. mate, that, that was probably that like, that was like 1956 or something. I didn't, didn't even work in kilos then. Uh, pounds. Yeah. I know, it's Ed's the one that gets, like, funny about it. He's like, oh, I'll have to go and train a bit more, or I'll get my deadlift back up to better than yours. Yeah, well, Ed's obviously very young and... Uh, he likes to see like he's the big, strong, shredded man. So. Strongest group. <laughs> but really, Fran is the strongest of the group by a country mile. Probably, yeah. It's those knee sleeves. That's what it is. It's the SPDs. <laughs> it's good. They are. Cheating. Cheating. Um, no. I, I believe they're actually allowed under the, the rules of powerlifting, my friend, depending upon the federation. But I imagine knee sleeves are available in all of them. Is that right, Fran? Yeah, you're not allowed knee wraps, so you're not allowed the ones that you wrap around really tight, but knee sleeves are, I think the rules are, as long as you can get them on on your own, you can't have anyone else help you get them on, um, and they can't be touching either your singlet or your socks. And then yeah, I was going to say, because I know you've talked about having, I think Brazil you bought ones that you can even physically get on, but obviously you could just get some smaller ones and get yanked, yanked into them, which would, yeah. would help, right? I, I didn't do it on purpose. I measured my ginormous calves, and right, then I couldn't okay. get them. And obviously, the the set I bought, I couldn't get over. So, size, right? I can't remember. I think they were small, but I yeah. honestly, genuinely thought I measured them right. Um, so I had to send them back and get another pair um, and get a size up, which now fit lovely. So they do. I know we've had this conversation in terms of. I suppose what was the point of having them in terms of. Um, they do well. The, the the evidence does show they do lift more load by having them. But does that attribute to more hypertrophy, which is obviously my goal, not necessarily to lift more load? So I don't know. Jury's out. But I, I like wearing them. They do. They make me feel nice. They're comfortable. <laughs> I like the fact that it immediately added about five kilos onto my squat. So it makes you feel more confident, Brizzle. I'm sure you're lifting more as a result. Yeah, and the way I look at it, you lift more. That's, I mean, you know, I know we're talking about stretch reflexes and stuff, but I kind of figure that must just mean more load in the bar, more volume, more hypertrophy. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, that is not today's topic, even though that would have been a fantastic segue into it if it was. Um, but there we go. 
Um, cool. What? Anything else going on before we move on? Anything else to worth? Oh, what have you been doing with your nutrition while you're on holiday? Obviously, I appreciate you're in a slight deficit as a need as a need for the um, competition. But how have you kind of been approaching it then while you've been away? Yes. So my family is—they've actually been really good. They've been super understanding that I've been like taking, for example, lunch with me, so prepping something to take onto the beach. So while they're all there having pasties and God knows what else, donuts and whatever, I'm there with my Tupperware and my rice and my sausages. Um, so I've just been having like breakfast has been pre-workout so it's been quite carbohydrate based um and then usually like a, a protein shake or bar afterwards just get a serving of protein in um take some lunch with me take protein bars out and about with me and then if i'm out of restaurants i'm just being fussy and just saying to them look can you just put the dressing on the side or don't put butter on my potatoes and then just eyeballing from there um which isn't fun but it's kind of needed at the moment so yeah but at least you're still eating out and stuff it's not yeah yeah like it's not a massive stress because i'm not i'm not like five kilos over my weight class it's not like i have to be super super stressed out about it so it's just being a little bit more mindful about not probably having a cornish pasty at lunch and then an ice cream in the afternoon and then like a three-course meal in the evening it's just being sensible i suppose yeah Cool. Yeah. Cool. Good. Right. Well, I really don't have a segue into what we're going to talk about today, so we just have to go into it. I was really trying to hope to find something because just didn't work. Um, <laughs> well, we Matt Matt actually I haven't read it yet. Your <laughs> blog. So we've obviously started to try and write a bit more long form stuff onto our website, and obviously you started with a really good blog. So I understand about gluten, <laughs> um, and it just inspired a little bit of topic in terms of. I thought it'd be really good to do uh, an episode this mm. week around food allergies and food intolerances, um, because I guess it's like quite prominent. Certainly, become more and more prominent. I mean, you've only got to look at the amount of gluten-free food now available in supermarkets and restaurants to see how popular it is. Um, and I know we'll obviously get onto the the whether it's actually as prevalent as the widespread amount of those gluten free style products. I mean, there's only one aspect, I guess, of a food allergy is gluten. But um, yeah, I suppose the point is we're just trying to say is, is it as big as maybe we, like people seem to think in terms of how much it actually affects people. So we'll explore that at some point, I'm sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, where do we want to start with this, though, I suppose? so. I, I think, yeah, I, I guess wouldn't you start with the difference between allergies and intolerances to food? Because I think that's, that's an important definition. That's where a lot of my beef, no, my problem with some of the stuff comes from is, is the harm that some people do by belittling allergies by using their intolerances, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. That's a mouthful. Yeah, no, no. I will. Shall I start then with yes. what the difference between allergy and intolerance? Because I must admit, it is something I think that is used quite often interchangeably, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, I think before the call, we said I'm not sure whether it really matters as such in terms of the differences because because people do use them interchangeably. Actually, is it really relevant? It's a bit like fat loss and weight loss. Like when people say weight loss, we know they mean fat loss, but you know, you don't yeah, say, I just mean fat guess- loss. I guess obviously you're defining, but I guess the difference is if you have an allergy, it's a lot more severe if someone dismisses it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So, a, a food allergy, I guess, by definition, and I did look this up, I'm not going to lie. So, I didn't know so far, but it's an abnormal uh, immunological mechanism. Um, so, what that means is it's something that is basically um, causing antibodies to attack cells so i guess like an autoimmune disease is the, is the best best example of it so um because of that, uh, yeah. maybe it might be good to give examples such as like celiac or yeah 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 so celiac would be one um and yeah and i was gonna say because of that that it's basically something that we can you can actually test for the mechanism of it and it can therefore be proven so like as you say celiac's a prime example in that 
for people that are intolerant to uh, gluten or the the wheat protein, you can test for antibodies in the blood, which suggests obviously that it's been attacked, and therefore yes, you can define someone as a as a celiac. Say so, allergies there, like you say, can um, are different than intolerances. Intolerance is really something that is um, not an abnormal immuno- immunological mechanism. So basically, just something that happens, and that's probably the only way I can describe it. So. Um, yeah, it, I don't. I guess like an example might be just typical IBS. So you you eat a food that basically doesn't agree with you, and for one reason or another, you have some sort of symptoms that you don't particularly enjoy. But I think Matt, the one of the the points you made around obviously allergies being dismissed, whereas in, uh, because of people's intolerances, the severity of allergies is obviously a lot higher generally than intolerances. So like obviously one of the things, and I suppose we'll get onto it, is like. Um, a symptom of an allergy would be like anaphylactic shock, say, which you obviously can die from. Whereas I don't believe, I, I don't know if you two can correct me, but I don't believe there's many people that dies from a food intolerance. No. no, no there's exactly the distinction that um, is important. It's, it's a lot more dangerous for the individual who has an allergy than someone who has an intolerance. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess like obviously I don't know if we're jumping ahead, maybe maybe a little bit, I don't know, but like because obviously allergies can be um, tested for and obviously proven intolerances. I think there's just so little research out there um, that the the cause and effect can't actually be uh, applied, so we can't actually see what's happened. I think outside of um, FODMAPs, and we'll get onto what those are, etc. Outside certain specific scenarios where they can, but the rest of it really is kind of a bit so into individual the mechanism as to why it's happened is it's not really well known no exactly that cool okay now we've established the differences um let's start on allergies so allergies um i've uh from the research that i've done uh you can see that they can kind of cut the, or break them into four different types so um, these are gastrointestinal uh, um, cutaneous so un- like skin conditions basically respiratory and then general and general is the anaphylactic shock part so um, gastrointestinal obviously going to be nausea vomiting diarrhea cramping it's a lot of the stuff that is also attributed to some of the symptoms you get from IBS uh, cutaneous obviously as I say skin conditions so eczema um, I can't think of any other skin conditions. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Rashes, stuff like that. Yeah, that type of thing. So obviously they can be basically triggered by uh, foods. Um, respiratory, asthma, uh, that type of stuff. Or, um, yeah. And then, let's say, general, uh, it's one of the general allergies or symptoms can just be stuff like anaphylactic shock where your organs basically go into a weird overdrive type of... Uh, shut down i don't know how else to explain and i've had to shock for people that know but people kind of you know like obviously you get people know this scenario of, oh my god you, you're allergic to peanuts you're peanut up quick get the epi pen out and stab in some epinephrine and get everything going again yes um i don't think there's much to add to that really this it's a good definition um yes cool yeah so uh, i guess like um, I don't know where we want to go with this then in terms of like, so do we want to touch on the bit around, let's go around kind of like the gluten and celiac stuff in terms of, um, obviously the symptoms there can be annoying, really, mostly. They're not going to be too much life-threatening stuff. I don't know anyone that's died from celiac disease or I don't know if we, and I guess like, why is that or what do we do to kind of help? I don't know if you want to, or where do we want to go with this? What, what type of what what part of, of celiac and gluten? Because that was obviously something that you wrote in your blog. I don't know if you want to kind of go into a specific line of it. Yeah, I think maybe just to start, like, I guess this this is a an updated version of a blog I wrote a few years ago, and it was more. Um, it was actually on a so maybe maybe go into a bit of an anecdotal thing before going into some of that. I went on holiday, so sailing trip, and um, we you get basically put in with. Um, a mixed group that you haven't met before, basically. And on our boat, there was a 
it was two couples and the girls in this two couples knew each other and they put down their form um you know we don't eat gluten um which was fine so so the the uh the skipper who does all the cooking as well was trying really hard to not give them anything that can contain gluten which is hard kind of in the mediterranean um and <laughs> the ridiculous thing was they got off of potatoes and they turned them down because it was carbs so it turned out they were avoiding carbs not gluten and they'd just said they were avoiding gluten so they didn't get served carbohydrate or they in the belief that it would make them lose weight which is a long roundabout way of going about it but fine so i just said you know are you celiac or is there a reason you're avoiding it and they said no just because of the carbs um and then we were looking into uh just happened to be reading about it while i was away and it was talking about the rise of um people who have got celiac getting um serve food with gluten in because of the rise of people trying to avoid gluten for non-necessary means and what the impact of that was happening was basically people were going into restaurants or still do go into restaurants um and claim that they are gluten-free or it's become very common you just have to look at your supermarket aisles um and the old report i looked at um showed it was a huge number of of products have arisen in the past few years to see that people are cutting out gluten for various reasons which does, doesn't correlate with the amount of celiac in the UK um, so kind of looking into that it was my my reason for it was because the restaurants and certain cafes and stuff like that were starting to dismiss it as not really a problem because you know it's a bit like cry wolf enough people ask for it um you kind of just get dismissed and you know if you are celiac and you get served gluten the impacts and you know kind of consequences of that are pretty awful um so i kind of went into you know what, what why people try and remove gluten and stuff like that and not so much now but back then it was just this high this thing about uh does it make you lose weight um this whole thing about being healthier you know kind of reducing uh, air quotes uh, gut problems stuff like that um the irony being of course that if you have gut problems you'd lose weight anyway um not gaining weight so yeah it was kind of um looking at that and then actually finding some research around people who remove gluten um so when you looked at people that remove gluten unnecessarily so those that aren't celiac uh you know what the impact was that was and the research was showing that it had adverse health effects for those removing gluten because they're removing other products from their diet. Mm. Um, and then kind of just going through the the cost of going gluten-free, which has come down a lot recently, but, you know, you're looking at 2 to 300% in some cases higher cost for the same product. Now, on the flip side of that, the, the positives of, uh, I guess, the rise of the gluten-free fad, so for those who are non-celiac, is that it has made food cheaper and more accessible like if you look at the range of gluten-free products now it's it's huge right and you see all the time on fitness products or uh, re- uh, products related uh, targeted towards fitness people they've removed they often state gluten-free on there um you know so it has made it a lot more accessible in terms of that but i think the so the, the downside are that it's made it kind of be brushed under the table in some circles because it uh, prevalence of people asking for it unnecessarily. Just on that, I just obviously just to put it into context so people are aware. So um, it's kind of expected. I think that obviously it's hard to to know definitively how many, but I, I think we base off American data more than anything. But it's expected something like half percent to one percent of the population are actually celiac, right? Yes. Yeah, I guess. Um, there's a lot more than that. Yeah, there's a lot more. So than yeah, that like people so some stats, that. and I guess, I guess these stats are a little bit old. Uh, let me just quick check the date on those. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't too. It was 2016, so not that out of date. But Mintel did market research, and this is in the UK. So for once, we get some UK data. So when you look at um, people avoiding gluten, the majority. Of them avoided it for uh, healthy lifestyle reasons, 
other rather than those reporting it for medical reasons. So the market for people avoiding it for, as part of a, again, air quote, healthy lifestyle is bigger than those avoiding for medical reasons in 2016. I can only assume it's maintained or um, stayed the same. Sure. If that makes um, sense. Yeah, no, no, totally. I, 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 there's one thing that often comes up, and it's not specific for gluten, but I mentioned to you before around... Um, there was a study done in Holland where they had, I can't remember the, the study size, but um, they had something like 10% of adults believed that they had food intolerances. So it wasn't specific, as I say, to gluten or even food allergies. But when they did a, um, a clinical blind trial on it, only like 2% of them actually had any symptoms when they were obviously given the foods that they thought. So, and, and there's also some stuff, and I'll be honest, I was trying to find it, but I don't think I can, but um, or not that quickly anyway, but... I remember reading through some studies that were on examine.com around specifically gluten where they kind of got groups of people uh, and basically gave some a placebo, gave some gluten and like the the people that were self-diagnosed for being um, not celiac but having um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, like half of them that said they were didn't um, and ironically half of them that said they didn't did have a spacey symptoms um, of some sort. So it kind of shows like either psychologically there's some powerful stuff going on there that people even can almost believe themselves to be uh, not see the app obviously have some sort of issues with wheat or gluten or bread or whatever um or it's obviously just far more complex than than that i don't know but it's yeah i thought it was really interesting and I just, like, as i say it just shows you whether i mean i say it just shows you it, it's, it's one it, it wonders to me that actually it is maybe something that people um generally do think that they do have issues and it's actually given them i don't know does that make sense yeah you mean well again and i i appreciate looking a bit more but isn't there the um potential where you you remove food from your diet and therefore you make you kind of feel a bit more sensitive it when you reintroduce it anyway um i think i've heard that before with definitely with milk milk yeah that was the one it's the lactose isn't it uh, fran yeah so the act of removing it because you think you're uh, intolerant or allergic or you don't handle it or for health reasons and then you reintroduce it because you really fancy a bowl of crunchy nuts and you've lost the ability to uh, digest lactose. Yeah, I guess a lot, a lot of this is because obviously a lot of foods that you eat actually have enzymes within them that help digestion, don't they? So lots of fruits and vegetables and I guess not necessarily saying that obviously milk has lactase but if you remove dairy from your diet and you no longer then consume lactose i guess there's something there that your body just stops worrying about having lactase to actually break down lactose because there is none to break down yeah yeah milk's a funny one because i guess like i know we're moving on maybe a little bit but milk's obviously an allergy and intolerance and i didn't mention this actually maybe i should have done but What's quite this was I didn't really know this, but uh, food allergies are almost always a um, so to say an immunological res, uh, result of protein. So if you think about it, all the things that people are like have food allergies all are some form of protein. That was, yeah, that, was that makes makes sense. Gluten being protein, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Obviously, it's the protein in wheat. Um, and I guess like most of the main allergies, so like milk, eggs, fish. Crustacea, peanuts, soybeans, tree nuts, wheat, all forms of protein. So that's it. That's very interesting. But I guess like the milk thing, you're talking about lactose. Now, lactose is obviously a sugar. It's carbohydrate. So that would fall under the intolerance rather than allergies. Um, so milk and I don't know why I even got into it really, but milk can obviously be both an allergy and an intolerance because the milk protein or lactose, depending upon obviously what the issue is or what's causing. I guess, again, that's that shows you how complex some of this stuff is. Um because obviously you, you could have milk and think, oh, I've got a problem with milk. And I, I guess the outcome is obviously you don't have milk necessarily, but it might be that you've either got an allergy to the milk protein or it could be that you actually just have an intolerance to the lactose in the milk or it could be both. Yes, hence why you get lactose-free milk products. Yeah, but lactose-free milk products, if you're allergic to milk, you're still allergic to lactose-free milk. So you have to then have like goat's milk or mm. sheep's or something some other type of milk that's not a cow's milk 
So I suppose if you have the intolerance, you get the lactose-free milk. If you have the allergy, then you can't have the milk altogether. Yeah. So, and again, that's what I mean by how complex it is because one person might go, well, I, oh, I have a problem with milk, but I can I have this milk. And someone else mm. might have that milk and then not have not be able to take it and stomach it and excuse the pun and then be able to they have to then move on some different like you say like a different animals type of milk because some people can um obviously tolerate goat's milk quite well and not dairy although actually a lot of people can tolerate an amount of dairy so it might be like um in fact i'm sure i read somewhere that most even people with that lactose intolerant can still stomach a reasonable amount of milk more than you think like a cup of milk without any problems so i guess a, a, a lot of this stuff with think with allergies there's less although i think there is still some of it but and it's and what i was going to say is i think with allergies there's less dose dependent so i think if you've got an allergy it's most likely that even a small amount is going to cause you a problem with an intolerance i think there's very much a more individualized dose dependent amount yeah okay um so i, I think maybe a good place to step back in just to touch on something you said earlier is always so you talked about the fact that you can test, and I, I kind of want to touch on this because, again, this is something that I see fairly regularly or hear about from people. So you said you can test um, for food allergies. Um, the food intolerance testing, what's that? The no-nonsense nutrition take on food intolerance testing. Go on, friend. What is our take on intolerance testing? Eat basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know what else to say um it's just very non-evidence-based at the moment most of these tests that you send away blood samples or pea samples or saliva samples whatever it is that you send away pea they send samples. you back a panel of different foods that you're supposedly intolerant to is i don't even know what it's based on but it's not based on scientific evidence they, yeah, so they they test for um, they test something called IAGG. Oh, I don't know if I've said that right, but basically, the fact that it shows elevated levels of this in relation to a food doesn't necessarily mean you're allergic to it. It just means that you may have just recently eaten it. Um, I think the, probably the most telling telling thing, and you can know there's probably various arguments we've all seen on the internet or the industry and. Stuff, but the NHS, who you know, aren't always perfect, but they're they kind of help around food intolerances. Is there a food intolerance test? And they blunt just say no, there is no test for food intolerance uh, intolerances. The only way to know if you have one is to monitor your symptoms and the food you eat. Uh, see what happens when you cut out the suspected food for a while and then reintroduce you back into your diet, aka elimination diet, right? Yes. Sorry. Sorry, my meat thing went there. So, yeah, I think, you know, all these tests where you send off like hair follicles, um, you do the skin testing and stuff like that, they come back with a long list of foods you're alert, uh, sorry, intolerant to, but really there's there's no evidential or scientific basis for those. Um, they're kind of clutching it at straws and making a tenuous link to say that you are um intolerant to those but really you know that in itself is just causing problems because you're cutting out food unnecessarily and some of the foods they come back and say you're intolerant to are really random like i've heard people say they're uh, intolerant to broccoli or yeah i was gonna say lettuce lettuce and i mean the thing is a lot of those foods might be things that are quite high in fodmap say so like like take broccoli obviously it's reasonably high in in fodmap so that might if someone does have issues with fodmaps then obviously broccoli is not going to be a great choice for them so I don't know whether that's maybe what they play on in that they you know they kind of pick a you know strawberries, broccoli, and then throw in lettuce the odd thing and just think well actually if they if they, if they take out some of those foods, um, they might actually then reduce some of the symptoms like, well bloating but that's quite normal I think bloating I think that's one of those things where like bloating is a symptom of IBS but actually I think most people does will all experience bloating at some point during the day I think it's like well you wake up in the morning feel fresh as a daisy you've not eaten but by the time the end of the day where you've had food you know you've moved around a lot um you, you could obviously have a lot of fiber then sitting in your in your your digestive tract or in your stomach you probably by the end of the day most people are bloated is that fair to say yeah 
Yeah, I'd say so as well. I think, yeah, there's also quite a difference between just being full and having food in your stomach and being able to, like, push your tummy out with a food bake and actually having, like, a proper solid, like, bloat that's quite uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think people often are sometimes just full because they've eaten too much and go, oh, I'm bloated, it must have been, I don't know, the gluten in my sandwich rather than the fact that, no, you probably just ate quite a lot. Yeah, people say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, it's the, oh, it's definitely, definitely got a problem with gluten." It's, you know, the, there's so much gluten in the sandwich. You mean just because you ate seven sandwiches? It's like, yeah, it's probably why you're a bit full. Yeah, don't you, don't you see that a lot after like a Domino's pizza? I've, uh, for some reason, I just associate people saying that with Domino's pizzas, and it's like, well, you just take down a large pepperoni passion. What? Yeah. yeah. So, what do you expect to happen there? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Harrison talks that actually a few times. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's like bloating is, as I say, common. I don't want to say normal, common. Um, But it's also, it's nothing inherently wrong with it other than the uncomfortableness. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong. Oh my God, there's a problem. So, you know, a lot of people just kind of just put up with it almost because obviously it's kind of like well you know it's kind of like a bit like a normal physiological thing to a certain extent as I, as you said fran i think it's when it gets like so it's horrendously painful and comfortable that's when it's not um but then then it's just more of a case of well just managing that symptom so how do you do that and maybe that's a good place to go on to now so um allergies aside so obviously a lot of the common allergies around like peanuts or crustacean or crustacea or um I don't, I've not really heard eggs being so dangerous, but some of those can obviously be potentially fatal um, to some people if to depend upon the severity and the dose of obviously the the stuff. Um, so outside of those, so kind of moving on to some of the other allergies or maybe the intolerances where um, it is just a specific food causing some type of symptom that's just uncomfortable or you know like basically a lot of the gastrointestinal stuff, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, diarrhea cramping, etc. What other than um, actually no, let's go say other than elimination diet, which is probably one of the biggest things. Um, what what can we basically do to help? So I've kind of given a bit of a hint there in terms of elimination diet, but what can we do to try and treat those symptoms? That's where I'm trying ooh, to get to. Oh, I know, elimination diet. Oh yes, how do you know? Um, okay, let's. So you've said it already, kind of, but let's just go in a bit more detail. What is an elimination diet? It is eliminating common foods. In usually under medication supervision because it's you need to know when to reintroduce them, but eliminating foods and then slowly reintroducing to see if you get a reaction. Um, so I've been through this actually when I was younger, I, I get migraines a lot, um, and we basically did it for trigger foods and migraines like common foods like chocolate, dairy, caffeine, um, some other stuff I can't remember but basically they eliminated from a period of time and then slowly reintroduced and monitored to see if it triggered my migraines um, which it didn't um, but this is similar to that in terms of do you get the symptoms associated with those foods once you slowly reintroduce them um, yeah it's basically what it says on the tin you eliminate foods and you slowly reintroduce one at a time and monitor the reaction to see if you can find out what is causing that that uh, symptom yeah, I, I I mean I've kind of got like a couple, couple of ways, uh, and I think I just want to highlight though the caveat of you said in terms of medical supervision. I'm not not saying you have to go to a, a a doctor or something if you want to do this, but I do think it's worth seeing a professional of some sort, specifically someone like a dietitian or you know like a decent nutritionist, um, just because it'd be quite easy to do something like a low FODMAP diet or elimination diet and because they are so obviously by nature restrictive um, get stuck in it I see I see it like with uh, friends and family that have had to kind of go through it I've seen it with them they have literally just got stuck in it and can't really you know they're almost now having to try and live a, a, an elimination diet like forever and they're not meant to be that at all they're meant to be a protocol to follow to establish you know what the issue is um, and you need an exit plan, effectively, because otherwise, as I say, you, you're just going to be living in a state where you can't you can't sustain, or you're then going to be living in a state where you're constantly going to have these symptoms because you keep you know you, you restrict or eliminate these foods all week, and 
after a couple of weeks you just can't help but binge on a pizza in the same way as people do with like clean eating or other types of restrictive diets so um yeah definitely worth that that caveat in terms of having a professional help you through it so what i was going to say is like a couple of ways so i guess like you could eliminate everything that is uh, suspected that could be a common cause for whatever symptoms they are so let's take uh, something like if you've got all these like GI issues um, you could just say right okay well let's just get rid of all FODMAPs so FODMAPs for people who don't know are basically types of sugars that are found in um, certain foods so fermentable oligo, disaccharide, monosaccharide and polyols get me um, so, so I was just going to Google that and then read it out. No, I don't need to, mate. I've said it so many times now, I remember. Um, so, yeah, you could remove those. Um, and obviously there are, you know, you can find lists anywhere on the internet or whatever else. But um, those types of foods basically tend to hang around in the um, small intestine, I think. And they just basically ferment and cause gas, bloating, and the rest of the symptoms so diarrhea vomiting potentially etc so they do cause people some issues so you could basically just eliminate all those gradually um put one back in at a time and then you know as and when you get ill or sick you can kind of try and then attribute that to obviously the food you just reintroduced so that's one way of doing it or you could just pick one food at a time so make it less restrictive. So, like, as an example, am I right in thinking tomatoes have a reasonable amount of FODMAPs? Or oh, I know, obviously, a lot of nightshades. So take garlic and onions. That's probably a better example. Um, but essentially, you could say, right, I'm just going to try and remove all onions and garlic from my diet and then see if that cures your symptoms. If it does, you think you got it. And there you go. So I guess there's two ways of doing it. Or the alternative, I suppose, the third way could be just take a food diary and measure that alongside a symptom diary. And as your symptoms then spike or have bigger problems, you can try and then attribute it to see if there's a trend. So there's three, there's I suppose three ways that I could see you could try and help manage and diagnose almost. The food diary is probably something that I've, well, it's what I've always started with whenever I've had someone that's gone, oh, I've got sort of like tummy problems, blah, blah, blah. My doctor said it's IBS. I've always started with the food diary and symptom diary because quite often, people haven't even thought to write down their symptoms or what they're eating. They're just like, ah, something's causing a problem. And quite often, like, when you have it down on paper and you, like, actually look, oh, here I ate, I know, a garlic pizza bread or something and I had some symptoms and then I had a spaghetti bolognese with garlic in and people can often, like, do the dot-to-dot themselves without ever having to go through the entire kind of, restriction because I think I've, heard, I've definitely heard dietitians talk about the elimination diet as kind of like the last port of call in terms of like it is very restrictive it is very hard for people to follow um like most people can't just eliminate all of those foods from their diet like you say a lot of people will go out and binge later on and it is definitely something that should only I can't remember the exact time period but it's only like a, I think it's like a month or two months or something that it should happen over and other than that, it shouldn't go on for longer because of all the reasons that you said with kind of getting stuck within the restrictive cycle. Yeah. But it's meant to be like a time-limited thing. Yeah. I think the thing with the restrictive cycle is a good way of putting it, cycle, because obviously inevitably what happens is when they eat foods they're not supposed to um, or reintroduce foods maybe like too quickly, um, that can then obviously cause these issues. And the first thing they do is go straight back to elimination diet again to try and think, oh, I've got to relieve those symptoms, so I'll just go back and restrict all those foods again. And that does just become a bit of a cycle. And as I say, like my, my sister-in-law is a prime example in that she's a vegetarian um, uh, with, uh, not celiac, but she's a vegetarian with what you would self-diagnose as non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I suppose. Um, and also some style of IBS for lots of other foods so she did see a, another nutritionist um, who basically removed almost everything from a diet like any fibrous raw vegetables um, obviously any FODMAPs nightshades that type of stuff so she basically lives on cottage cheese rice cakes cheese and yeah omelettes eggs that's about it you think that like she said enough times how like it's almost to the point of depression how bad her diet gets sometimes and that you know it's no wonder where like you just think fuck it i'm just gonna put up with having a 
you know, like diarrhea or whatever else, and I'm just going to have like a pizza or something because I just can't, I can't live on cheese and rice cakes anymore. So, yeah. Yeah, the interesting thing is people don't, like you don't go out and eat an onion or you don't go out and eat a garlic, do you? Like you go yeah. out and eat something like pizza with probably, I don't know, vegetables on it, tomatoes and onions, garlic, like a ton of different things that could be causing your problem. And then you have this meal, you know that it's caused you a big problem, but you, you have no clue what it is on or in the meal that has caused the problem, and then you just go back to eliminating everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, the problem. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I think the problem is, it's like, you know, you get to that point where you then think, well, I can't, I'll just have to restrict them forever. And actually, that shouldn't be the case. And um, none of us were there, were we? But there was... Um, oh, what's the lady's name who did... Uh, the latest Matt Nutrition Conference who did the, the topic on gut health. Was it, I want to say Jen Robinson. Have I made that up? No. I think Ursula something. Oh, Ursula Philpott, didn't she do the... Um, yeah. She did the eating disorder lecture, didn't she? Um, anyway, by the by, it doesn't matter. We'll we'll correct that at another point. But essentially, there was a bit I I took from someone's um, Instagram stories that they were doing where she was saying around literally, I think it was eight weeks actually, Fran. You're right in terms of the time scale, how long it should be for before she's starting to reintroduce some foods again. But the people that don't reintroduce foods actually put themselves at more risk of um, gut issues by not introducing them. I guess a lot of that might be, and I am guessing. I, I, I said I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm well researched in any way, shape, or form in that area, um, but it might be obviously by restricting your diet so much and foods, you're messing with stuff like your um, your gut health, basically your microbiome and your um, bacteria in your gut. Because obviously, as as you if you don't feed it, then you obviously lose a lot of the strains or the amount of actually gut bacteria in there. Which there's lots of healthy gut bacteria it should be, which help with your digestion, help many stuff. So um, you tend to find that, I guess, with like keto is a, a good example of what another reason why I don't think keto is the best example because obviously such high fat, um, often obviously high saturated fat as well. Not that it's inherently bad, but obviously you don't really want all of your fats to come saturated fats. Um, high protein and or moderate high protein, and then very little carbohydrates. So difficult to get stuff that actually promotes good gut health, i.e., fruits, vegetables, and fiber, because obviously you can't eat huge amounts. I know, obviously. Um, it's not really that well understood, but most people that do follow keto just do that. They just don't eat any fruits or vegetables, and therefore, yeah, they're going to struggle to p- promote any type of good gut health or good gut um, microbiome, which is really important. And obviously, I know the research is still very, very new, but there's more and more good stuff kind of about how it's linked with so many different things. So, like the prevalence of um, like having certain strains of gut bacteria might mean that some people are more. What's the word? Um, at risk of obesity um, for various reasons. I think one of the reasons, and this is quite interesting, one of the reasons I heard was, was that something along the lines of like, if you've got like an, um, oh, I can't think of the right term, but basically if you're more prone to obesity th- because of gut health, it might be because something like you do, your microbiome or your gut bacteria that you have can extract more energy from things that you wouldn't normally be able to, like fiber, say. So obviously where we say fiber is undigestible, well, actually a lot of it like that and the cellulose goes obviously into the intestine and then can ferment into short-chain fatty acids and that's what can be used for energy. Well, if you live in an environment where obesity is a problem already, you don't really want to be getting more energy out of your food. So that's kind of like where, and I, I, I'm sure it could be something like up to 15% of energy, which is quite a reasonable amount. So... Whereas you might be a different individual, might be actually their microbiome or gut uh, bacteria isn't set up in that manner. And actually they don't get anywhere near that amount of energy out of, you know, things like fiber. So therefore they're probably going to be more resistant to obesity because of, you know, they're just basically less net energy, uh, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, I guess I don't really know where I was going with that. I just thought it was quite cool. Proper tangent. Uh, Dr. Megan Rossi. Is it Megan Rossi? Yes. Okay, cool. The gut health doctor. Yeah, but I, so some of the stuff I saw was basically so so very very interesting. It's like I really want to kind of dedicate some more time going through a lot of this stuff because it is quite cool. And I do think like coming back to your point, Matt, around like people that maybe don't um, aren't clinically suffering from this stuff, and whether whatever reason they they feel like they are, so you know they're having to self-diagnose some of these issues. I think knowing more about it could probably help with all that scenario. Yeah, I agree. So, I would like to the, the, is picking out 
what to read and what's not. You have to be quite selective in. The there's whole a whole lot of fuckery. Yeah, there's a lot of nonsense out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's a little. Note. Uh, just sorry, before you jump jump Go on, on Brazil, just on that elimination stuff. The other thing that I've seen a few times that I guess people forget about is like drinks. So like caffeine is a major gut irritant. Um, people seem to forget that and alcohol has another impact of that as well so I think sometimes people blame foods forgetting mm-hmm. they've, they're having that with either a coffee or mm-hmm. an alcoholic beverage which can you know cause similar problems Yeah. just just why I thought about that before you get on to the next point no no that's some really good points actually um, stress is nothing to add oh. obviously stress can, can very much bring out um, IBS style symptoms say fact i've got a anecdotal experience of a friend of mine that um suffered for ibs for years uh randomly went through a divorce um, from her husband and that literally just stopped well, yeah. got rid of the husband from got, himself yeah and and honestly 100 percent true it's so weird never never suffered and obviously she was one of these individuals who if they smelled gluten almost you would see them on the toilet half an hour later or, or like five minutes later um so, and whether, whether that's psychosomatic or psychological or, or whatever, I don't know. But it is interesting to think that how someone could suffer from that type of experience and then go through a, di- a divorce and I assume essentially become far less stressed and then it's like they're gone. Mm. Amazingly strange. And so, anecdotally, I struggle. Like, I've had numerous, I think I've medically from the doctors have IBS, but I struggle worse when. I'm under stress, so especially during exam times, for whatever reason, just get very, very bloated, very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I, again, I think there is a, and I don't, I don't really know the reason or mechanism behind it, but I think there is definitely something along the lines of that's quite normal, but maybe mm. people that have it like bad symptoms where they're just exacerbated somehow. Because um, I think you take the example of like, um, I don't know, people report like before big sporting events where they're nervous that they have to get to the toilet or um you know certainly like i've had it where i've had to do like stand up speaking in front of people sometimes like, i had to stand up in a um uh a lecture hall in london for obviously my job in front of over 100 people in which in europe's largest in front of the massive uh curved screen europe's largest curved screen and it's just massive stage and i was like holy shit this is scary um and yeah, like you just think to yourself, oh, I just got to go to the toilet. I can't, I can't. It's just, it's just nerves, isn't it? So I guess that's quite a normal thing. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be scared if I were you. That that head and those spotlights. Yeah, I know. I've got the it's video, fun. mate. You should see it. It's horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's um, also like the um, like when you're in a stressed state, you're not you're not digesting. Like your energy is not going into digesting. So isn't it like fight and flight and then rest and digest? So like when you're chilled out, like your yeah. digestion work properly when you're like constantly i know uptight stress like in that kind of hyper alert state of you know drinking rushing around whatever yeah i think obviously necessarily so go on. like yeah you're just your digestion is going to be slower yeah. as a result of the state that you're in yeah no that makes sense i mean obviously you've got like the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system aren't you? and i guess obviously they kick in in different times almost um it's only it's easiest way to describe it um i guess like if you're logically this feels like anyway if you go back to the time of like i don't know prehistoric times i know people hate it when you oh you, you can't compare now to prehistoric times but if you think about it like evolution hasn't hasn't really come on that much but you think about prehistoric times where if you're about to get eaten by a t-rex and you've just had a meal is it going to want to waste energy on digestion or is it going to go get the fuck that meal out of me? I just want to get away from this T-Rex so you vomit and run. <laughs> Almost. I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, the other thing I was going to add, exercise. Yeah, so obviously exercise can be an irritant. So, um, you know, you yeah. run, runner's trots is a prime example. Um, so I guess obviously you're digestion and, and whatever else kind of just the movement of it all can obviously help digestion but also it can obviously move it through transit a bit quicker so hence you get people like doing the marathon and getting diarrhea halfway around and stuff like that i guess a lot of that might come with overhydration as well because obviously that's quite common in, in endurance uh, athletes as well but 
Nothing else to add on that? Especially if you're very, very sedentary and things don't move through. I don't know. It's definitely a recommendation. Like if you're someone that suffers from, I don't know, constipation and you're very, very sedentary to move around a little bit more, you know, rather than sitting still. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, like as in like running causes diarrhea. So obviously it gets things moving a bit quicker. Uh, I say running causes diarrhea. Cool, that was a that was an absolute statement, wasn't it? <laughs> we don't speak in absolutes. Um, yeah, no, no. That obviously, because it is something that you do say. Obviously, if people do suffer from constipation, like you say, like having uh, a form of exercise can help with digestion. So, okay. Um, oh, we have flitted around a little bit, but. It's okay. I think it's still been good chat. Um, I was just going to say about so we've kind of talked about some of the treatments of IBS, but I guess so like some of the, the the treatments of allergies as such. So I think the biggest one's always going to be very similar to IBS avoidance. You know, if you've got an allergy of some sort, because some of the um, the, the symptoms or the outcomes of ingesting these things can be death, you might want to avoid it. I.e., peanuts. You know, the, the prime example everyone will have know, know about. If you've got a peanut allergy, a lot of people are obviously quite severe, and it can obviously be very, very dangerous. So avoidance at all costs is is kind of your mainstay of treatments. Yeah, I think with that kind of stuff is generally if you've got an allergy, you you probably already know about it. <laughs> well, you should, you should, although they can come on on later life. Mm. Um, but generally, you, sh- you should be under like medical medical care, and a lot of times, like my friends who one's allergic to peanuts and the other's allergic to both carry epipens around. Yeah. Um, yeah, you should. And with instructions on how to use them, but do you know, um, do you know, it's also interesting on that. While you're on that, actually, so I, I read somewhere some of the research before for the podcast that um, a lot or most or no, I think the word was many actually. Many people actually outgrow their allergies. Including things like peanuts and stuff. Yeah, I, had, I have heard that, but how? How do you find out? How do you find out? Yeah, we <laughs> and like, you know, I'm gonna try it and then just have my epipen near me, yeah. which which aren't cheap. My sister was like medically diagnosed when she was very very small baby to be allergic to pretty much all nuts, mm. and then I think we were on holiday like a few years ago, and she ate I can't remember what ice cream, but some ice cream that had almonds in. Um, and didn't react to it and we didn't find out until the end of the holiday and she'd had one like every single day or something ridiculous like this that it had almonds in and that was kind of like how she found out that almonds were no longer an issue so then she went back to the doctors and like a whole host I think she's still allergic to like peanuts and like another type of nut but almonds and I think I know she's still allergic to peanuts and pistachios or something but almonds and a few others like hazelnuts she's fine with now so I suppose that's a yeah, that's, that's really nuts, that is. Yeah, I think we. I think um, the. Uh, I th- uh, what I read when I said many people outgrow, I think most of it does happen through infancy. So obviously they're they're allergic as an infant, but through infancy into adulthood is when they then you know. But I guess it's like Matt's point around. Well, if you're a child and you're allergic to peanuts, you're not really going to give a child when they're a little bit older peanuts to see if they're outgrowing, are you? So you might not find out till way later in adult life anyway. Don't recommend the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, again, according to to our friends at the NHS, there's different children are more likely to be allergic to certain things, so milk, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish. Whereas adults, most common allergic reactions are peanuts, tree nuts. Okay, we get that, but fruits, shellfish, milk. and fish. Not milk. Not, not milk. allergic. I suppose intolerant would probably be more common in milk. Do you know, it was interesting. Like, and I, I heard this ages ago, and I don't remember where I heard it, but. Um, uh, I think African Americans, something like sixty to ninety percent of people are lactose intolerant. Same as a lot of Asians, like something a huge percentage of Asians as well. So obviously, a lot of it is based on food availability and like heritage and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, like I, I didn't think that there was that high a percentage of African Americans, say as an example, like sixty to ninety percent are suspected to have lactose intolerance. Mad. Proper mad. Yeah, mad. Um, mad. Okay, uh, so um, some of the other forms of treatment, so obviously said avoidance is your mainstay, but some of the obviously pharmaceuticals, so antihistamines or as Matt has said, your, epine- your EpiPen, your epinephrine, um, so obviously that will 
uh, treat anyone going into like anaphylactic shock, etc. And then immunotherapy is another form of treatment, which I didn't know what it was specifically, but apparently it's the administration of antibodies. So I guess that antibodies then just help with something, doing something in the something. That's the scientific term. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, anything we've not talked about. So we've kind of covered, obviously, allergies, intolerances, IBS. We didn't really mention anything about IBD, so irritable bowel disease being different than IBS. Um, so obviously you're talking things like Crohn's disease and other stuff. I don't know if you want to touch on that at all. We did, obviously, the episode with Steve. Hard to eat. I did come up with that name. I thought it was fantastic. No one get the pun? All right, just me then. It was good, it was good. I thought it was good. Hard to eat. If anyone didn't realise and didn't, hadn't listened to the episode, it's because Steve Kemp used to be the drummer of Hard Fi. And they did a song called Hard to Beat. So I called the episode Hard to Beat. Hard to Eat, sorry, which I thought was brilliant. But my jokes have obviously landed very poorly. Yeah, very poorly indeed. Still now. <laughs> oh, <God. coughs> Is that now time to wrap up on that note or what? Oh dear. Right, okay. Um well if we've got nothing else to add on this topic, um have we got anything we want to say, shout out, promote? I suppose actually we'll just mention the whole Rough Runner thing again that myself, Ed, and a couple of clients are doing on Sunday, the 9th of September. So if anyone wants to join, you can get a discount code, NNN Coach. We've got discount codes everywhere, haven't we? You know, Brett10, Eat Lean, go get your cheese. Um, come on, Fran, you must have some discount codes or something. You've got like 8 billion Instagram followers. Uh, I, think I can't remember any. I've got a Fitbit's one, which is Bolt, Bolt 10, I think. It's always something 10, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm going to put it, out, put it out there now that I'd sell out all 200 and something of my followers for a hex sausage deal. Well. I would. I wouldn't even want commission, just free sausage. Yeah, I've heard that about you. Um, <laughs> I I only, uh, to be honest, like, I I love Eat Lean, genuinely. Uh, we know you love Eat Lean. Yeah, I love it. But <laughs> I don't get anything for it from them um, other than free cheese, and that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. In fact, I take free cheese. Just, actually, I say I don't get anything from them. I'm supposed to get a pound every time someone used my code. Oh, really? I've never claimed it in the 14, 15 months I've been affiliated. So, but how much do you save on cheese? Well, this is what I mean. Like, I don't, I don't even want their money. I just want the cheese. So I've saved an absolute fortune because it's not cheap. Let's be honest. Um, they, they are quite good in. You want like 50 quid's worth of cheese every time. Well, they send you a lot seeing yeah. your packages. Yeah, we. <laughs> 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 what is Fran? What is wrong with you today? Don't, t- don't tell my wife. Don't tell my wife that you've seen my package. You're right. Bruce, when I think jokes like that in the fitness industry, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Current time. Sure. <laughs> That's what, you know. It's like Tanya on my Facebook status today talking about non-consensual sex, like somehow li- aligning that with the the ban on sugary caffeine monster drinks I, I did i did say that i was like don't you can't joke about that at current times and then i also saw ed post about the uh about swapping half your carbs and you you trolled him straight away <laughs> yeah i did swap half your carbs for vegetables I was like well what the fuck are vegetables then mm-hmm. honestly <laughs> edwards i know it's funny i to be fair like the funny thing was us trolling um susan because obviously we were trying to get her to say why she lost weight when she removed white bread and other white carbs. Nice. Nice. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything else, apart from apparently we're, we're now doing, uh, what did I see you post? So you looking at a, a cool photo of you doing some sort of presentation, Brizzle. Oh, yes. Yes. If anyone, wants, if, if anyone wants us to come and do any corporate or gym talks, nutrition talks of any sort, I'll be more than happy to travel the entire world, as long as I'm paid, obviously. I should yeah. get you up to Loughborough to do one for... Some of the teams up in Loughborough. That'd be amazing. Did it for a powerlifting team. I'd do that. Yes. Uh, it was you a good photo, Brazil. So, I know, but it'd be cool if I had like a 
I can, yeah, I can, I can they be an assistant. Me, I'm like, I'm like their friend. Yeah, well, yeah, there is a, there, that is an issue sometimes. If you find that with obviously actual nutrition coaching, you, you shouldn't really coach your friends. It generally doesn't pan out or work very well. So, yeah, I'd be up for that. That'd be quite cool. Cool. Yeah. Organize it. Yeah. Um, okay. Right. Well, there's nothing else. Oh, we did have one new review. Did you see that? Yes, it was a good review. Did yeah, people well, just review it? I think it it basically just said very interesting or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read it out. I'm going to find it because um, I post about today. Because uh, if if people want to give us some more reviews, please do because obviously it helps us get up the charts. But yes, yeah, so it was a review by John Pup, J O N P U P, all one word. Um, I find this podcast very informative. Good discussions around nutrition and health. The host's advice is sensible and well-reasoned. I'm glad it's sensible, even though this episode has not quite been that sensible. Mainly my fault. I'll take I'll take the responsibility for that. Cool. Right. Well, it's lovely to see you both. Glad you've both been back. And I'm glad you're both well. Um, we'll leave it there then. Nice. Hit the button. Right. Button. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.